Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello and uh, welcome to another episode of uh, Wisdom of Friends. I'm your host, Cal Aras, and today I'm really excited to be introducing you to a good friend of mine. His name is Kent Bicknell. Kent grew up in central New Hampshire and resides there still. In 1973, Kent became the founding head of Sun Bonnie School and stayed as a teaching head for 44 years, retiring in 2017. He was a scholar of the house at Yale University and holds a master's degree from Godard College and a doctorate from Boston University. Kent has been involved in education for five decades, including over 40 years on the advisory council of the New Hampshire Commissioner of Education and six years as a commissioner with the New England Association of Schools and Colleges. An independent scholar whose work has been published in a variety of journals, Kent's main interests are the New England transcendentalists like Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and the Alcott family. Kent's spiritual quest in the 60s culminated in receiving initiation in 1968 from Master Kirpal Singh of New Delhi, India. Friends, this is a fascinating conversation where Kent and I discuss a variety of uh, topics, including uh, education, spirituality, the quest for finding one's purpose. I hope you enjoyed this uh, conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only Kent Bicknell. Good morning, uh, Kent. Uh, welcome to the Wisdom of Friends show. I'm really excited that you took the time to be on this program. And uh, one of the things that I really, uh, when I read your profile and what an incredible career you've had, an amazing educational field as well as uh, just the kind of uh, work you've done around the world, specifically, specifically with uh, serving the educational fields in different uh, countries and and also what you have written books which are a couple of those are my favorites one is rainbow on my heart your a memoir of the early years of uh, the mission of master saint ajab singh ji and then recently the stepping stones the first five years of sunbani school and i want to get into that uh, here shortly but the first question I have for you is, and this is how we normally kick off all our show, uh, all our interviews, and that is, what's your favorite quotation or philosophy that you live by, and how have you applied it to your life? Well, there are obviously so many, it's hard to narrow down one. Uh, I really like a quote that came out of the journals of Henry David Thoreau when he was writing in, I think it was September or August of 1850. He made the observation, um, too often education is the attempt to make a straight-cut ditch out of a free meandering brook. And I, I really love that because it says to me so much about education and not only what's wrong with education, but what should be or could be right with education, but also life in general. I mean, none of us wants anyone making straight cut ditches out of us. We do want that element, that aspect of a free meandering brook that's within each of us, that kind of creative, gurgling, tumbling over rocks quality. Uh, You know, we want that to be recognized, honored, nourished. Uh, So that, yeah, that's a, that's a quote that comes to mind. No, I really like that. And as someone once, uh, a wise man once said, education is a price we pay to find out what are we really meant to do in life. And so that brings up another question uh, for me, Kent, is what did your parents do and uh, how did that shape your life? And what I mean by that is where did you grow up and how would you describe your childhood? Well, surprise, surprise, both my parents were educators. Uh, my dad... Uh, grew up in um, in Massachusetts and uh, along the way went to Springfield College, became very interested in athletics, was a great tennis player. And then 
he was hired as a young man for the faculty of a boarding school here in uh, New Hampshire called New Hampton School, and he joined the faculty there in 1937. He was a camp counselor at a camp in Maine, and there he met my mom, who was a camp counselor. She was from Ohio, and they fell madly in love and uh, married. It was World War II, so when the world when the war ended, uh, they came back here to New Hampshire. She was an elementary school teacher. He taught at the high school level, and uh, so I ended up growing up on a on a school campus. And from a young age, I had two older brothers, and I learned a lot from them. And I had an opportunity to work with younger kids, even when I was a teenager, and I liked doing that. So. For me, it had always been, I'd always been drawn to working with uh, others, especially thinking of the idea of being a teacher. I didn't particularly like the idea of getting teaching credentials because back in those days, long ago, teachers' colleges were not as enlightened as they are today. They were kind, it was kind of a rough go. So I found a different route, but uh, I was always interested in working with children and i i did that uh as soon as i got out of college no that's so great so sounds like there was a profound influence of education right from your childhood because of your parents being in that discipline and uh so for the benefit of the audience uh you essentially uh went to Yale and you also hold a master's degree from uh, Godard College and a doctorate in curriculum from Boston University so one of the questions we normally get from our audience is, how do we find a calling? How do we find what are we meant to do? And it seems like you did find a calling and uh, a passion for education early on in your life. So how to walk us through that journey, how did you know these were the choices that you, uh, w- was that something by chance that these opportunities came along or you always knew as a kid that this is a path that I'm going to pursue uh, for my for the rest of my life as my career goes or my professional success goes? Tell us that story. Well, I think there's two sides to that story. The the, the career, while I'm, I'm passionate about it, and it certainly nourishes a, a deep part of me, um, there's, it's also possible to just see it as your vocation or your profession, which, you know, when I was growing up, that's what people aspired to. They, what are you going to do when you grow up? Well, I'm going to be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, or fill in the blank. But what happened to me was, you know, I did have a kind of a, that question in my mind was there from early on. You know, I like, you'd see a chipmunk running along a stone wall and you think, wow, that's wonderful. Then you'd see the body of a chipmunk on the road, been you know, run over by a car and you'd look at it and you'd think, what the heck is that? Something's missing. Okay. Where is that spark of life? Where is that energy? Where is that electricity that was coursing through that body and made it so lively and cute on the stone wall? You know, where to go, where to come from. So that was, that was in me. And, you know, I just, when I went off to, to Yale, I was very fortunate to take a course in a seminar in modern Hinduism. And we, we studied four gigantic figures during that semester. And that was uh, Ramakrishna, Ramana Maharshi, Rabindranath Tagore, and Mahatma Gandhi. And seeing pictures of Ramakrishna that were taken at the time when my grandfather was alive, for the first time opened up the idea for me that, wow, could saints be alive today? Could there be such a thing as a living saint? Because up until then, I figured, okay, there was Jesus. He's been gone for 2,000 years. There's the Buddha. There's all these teachers from the past. And we yes, we have their written teachings. But the idea of connecting with a living st- saint was something that I got I was really drawn to, so much so, in fact, that that's part of why I dropped out of Yale for a while and went searching. So along with wanting a vocation, I also wanted some deeper part of me to be nourished. So those two went hand in hand, and eventually I was fortunate enough to connect with uh, first my wife. uh, and We just celebrated our 51st anniversary yesterday, I will say. Congratulations. 
Thank you. So I connected with my wife, Karen, and then as I hitchhiked around the country and we hit it off immediately. And then together we found the great teacher, Sant or Maharaj Kirpal Singh from New Delhi, India. And having that connection with the spiritual path is what opened the door for me to go back to school and study and then enter into a vocation once I was sure I wanted to teach I could do it wholeheartedly because I had both the inner life and the outer life were kind of pointing in the same direction. Master Kripal Singh once said something like, you know, if the needle of your heart and your mind and your soul all point in the same direction, then, you know, that's a pretty good sign that maybe that's the direction you ought to go. I'm misquoting that, but something along those lines. No, that's uh, beautiful. That's really beautiful. So just to recap, essentially, uh, you had this deep desire within to to really connect with the source within you as well as like, uh, you know, the curiosity about how things worked. Uh, And and I think uh, that alignment of inner deeper meaning and really uh, the curiosity of how things worked really set you on the path. And then I think the opportunity that you got to study those uh, four figures, Indian spiritual uh, figures like Ramakrishna, Maharishi, Gandhi, I think that really... Uh, so tell us about that. When you study those four spiritual figures, what was the biggest takeaway for you coming from a Western upbringing and studying some of the Indian spiritual leaders that, and you talked about like, uh, you know, the, there's a concept of a living saint. Uh, <clears throat> is it possible that they could exist today? And so what were some of the other uh, questions that were answered for you deep as you reflected on the teachings of these four uh, historical figures? Well, I think primarily it was, uh, about the levels of reality that were uncovered for me. You know, if you grew up in a Western culture, if if you're raised a Christian and you have a deep faith and abiding belief in Christianity, then you do have a, you are committed to this idea that there is a God beyond, but it's kind of like nothing that you're asked to experience directly inside on an interior basis on a day-to-day it's more faith and after you die you'll go to heaven uh when i read the life of ramakrishna there were so many instances in his life starting when he was a young boy and he was walking across the fields and he saw a flock of of geese flying over that it pulled him out of his body and he went into what was called uh, samadhi um and then you know that happened There's, there's a black and white photograph of him in samadhi standing and his disciples are having to support him on either side so he doesn't fall over so i just i thought wow what is this some kind of reality you can go to beyond your normal consciousness so it was really that kind of levels of reality that the notion of that the idea of that and the reality of that opened up for me as i studied those figures that's so great and tell us about your First encounter with your master son, Kirpal Singh Ji Maharaj, how did that come about and uh, what was that experience like when you first saw him and got initiated on the path? Well, in a kind of interesting, you know, is there serendipity in life or is everything already kind of mapped out? You know, I'm not going to answer that question, (laughs) but... uh, Karen and I were living with my parents here in in the central New Hampshire, and people kind of knew that we were both searching, and somebody said, well, have you been to the ashram in the next town over in Sanmerton? And we looked at each other and thought, ashram in Sanmerton? I mean, I'd I'd grown up in New Hampton. I never heard of an ashram in the next town over. So we one day we climbed into my mom's uh, Volkswagen bug and we drove over to the ashram expecting pagodas and monks and saffron robes. Instead, we found very normal people uh, living in a 200-year-old colonial uh, farmhouse, but they were following Master Kirpal Singh. And so we learned then some of the rudiments like earning your own living, leading a moral, ethical life, and maintaining the vegetarian diet, uh, not doing drugs, alcohol. And so we we got initiated not in his physical presence, but we did get a connection to that inner path. Two years later, 
1970, we were able to fly to India with our 11-month-old son and spend time with him. And, and that was extraordinary. The very first meeting was a little challenging. It had been a, an incredibly long flight in those days. We were both very, very tired. I went to, we went in to see him and he sort of said, kind of like, why are you here? And I said, well, we sent a cable that we are, we're coming. And he said, well, we didn't get the cable. And so we went away and I felt kind of, wow, is he rejecting us? And, and then a couple hours later, we heard that he was going somewhere and, and he was leaving the ashram. And we could go down and stand by the gate and have his darshan, it's called. You see the, the master, and that's an important part to just experience it. Well, we'd just done that, and I thought, okay, well, let's, let's, this is our second opportunity to see him. So we went down, and we stood by the gate with folded hands, and the car drove slowly by, and he looked at me, and the, probably the best word for it is I, w- I got zapped. Mm. Uh, every single cell in my body started tingling. I, I had to look down at my feet because I wasn't sure I was even standing on the ground anymore. I was absolutely floating. And then I'm so close to Karen that I kind of panicked and thought, oh, what if I got that experience? But she didn't. So I, I looked at her and she looked at me and she had this just crazy grin on her face. And we both, you know, we both had had the exact same experience. So, it, you know, the first thing was just something we needed to go through. And the second the second was a great, for me, confirmation that, that the master is, is very, very real and extraordinary in that uh, just far beyond any ordinary human being that I had met before. And I met you know, great professors, great lecturers, great psychologists and philosophers. But uh, this was something different. This was very special. No, that's uh, that's a beautiful story, and uh, as you rightly said, uh, the master works in mysterious ways, and uh, sometimes it throws us off. Uh, because I remember an incident with my brother. By the way, uh, my entire family is initiated by Sanji, and uh, uh, my brother on his second visit, my younger brother uh, actually uh, had visited Sanji, and he was uh, he was asked whether he was initiated or not. <laughs> the second time around and and it was like you know he was kind of thrown back but but the question really is you know sometimes we really don't know if it's just a testing part of the master that we are being tested or it's just uh the mystery of this whole uh, spiritual dimension that it just works in uh, magnificent ways uh so moving back to uh, just for the benefit of the audience, uh, Kent has also been uh, involved in education for five decades, including over 40 years of advisory council of the New Hampshire Commissioner of Education and six years as a commissioner with the New England Association of Schools and Colleges. And one of the things that I mentioned earlier before we started recording uh, a call, uh, Kent, is your uh fascination for and your research and work uh, that you did with the transcendentalist uh, movement during that time, which is Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson and the Alcott family. So tell us about what drove you to study those uh, figures and their work and what were your findings? Well, you know, one of the things that as a head of school, one of I'm just giving you a little preamble here. As a head of school, sometimes you turn me on and I talk. So I, I can talk too long and I can go into too much detail. So be sure to, to cut me off and steer me in the right direction if, if need be. But I would say that this all started in part with my mom, who was a tremendous collector, had a great eye for antiques. So when I was a child, I... I uh, would pedal down on my bicycle to the antique store that was right down the road. Every Saturday morning when they opened, I'd see if they found anything new for me. And at that time, it was the centennial of the American Civil War. So I started collecting Civil War material. And actually, I sold a lot of it when Karen and I were first married and helped us buy furniture that we still use today. But that collecting gene kind of went dormant for many years while my two boys were growing up they were playing hockey, you know, we were traveling a lot. But once they both got old enough, uh, I saw an ad for a rare book and manuscript show. 
at a hockey rink that they used to play in. It was the springtime. So I went down to that show and I found all sorts of fascinating things. And I it reawakened my interest in Nathaniel Hawthorne. So I started looking in Hawthorne. I'd read him in in high school and college and I liked him. But the more I studied Hawthorne, the more I kept bumping into his seemingly eccentric neighbor, neighbor Bronson Alcott. And Bronson, of course, is the father's known as the father of Louisa May Alcott and the other three Alcott sisters. And as an educator, kind of one of the first of the progressive educators. But the more I studied the lives of the Alcotts, especially Bronson, uh, he was a committed vegetarian for most of his life. Uh, very young, he decided he did not want to do harm to animals, and he stuck with that his whole life. He was reading the Bhagavad Gita and getting a lot of inspiration from it. It connected with experiences that he had had that he hadn't been able to explain. And his method for teaching kids really came out of trying to think what was best for the kids and getting them involved in helping mapping out uh, you know, their own experience and reflecting on those experiences. So... Once you start looking into Bronson Alcott and the Alcott family, you can't help but then look at the other people they were connected with, such as Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Margaret Fuller. So I began to plunge in more deeply there. I also, on the side, collect rare books and manuscripts, and I began to, uh, again, with this collecting gene, I began to get some fantastic pieces uh, from those people that really pointed to their deep engagement with the Asian spiritual traditions, particularly Hinduism, somewhat Buddhism, but uh, yeah, and and somewhat the Sufi tradition as well. No, that's great. And then uh, uh, you uh, acquired and edited and published a manuscript of a long fatal love chase, a gothic thriller by Louisa May. Uh, Alcott that became a New York Times bestseller. So how did you come across that manuscript and uh, what was that process like? <laughs> well, I'd love to tell you that through my incredible sleuthing, I found it in a <laughs> some Victorian house. But but really what had happened was uh, Louise May Alcott didn't have any children, but things went passed down to her sister's family. And the heirs had all this amazing Alcott material from her father and from her primarily. And just to keep it safe, they put it on deposit at Harvard. And each year they'd give some to Harvard and claim a charitable deduction. And at one point, uh, you know, 30 years ago, the, the brothers, three brothers who owned the material decided, wow, this is a lot of material. It's worth an incredible amount. Rather than just give it some to Harvard each year, maybe we should consider selling it. So Harvard found the money to buy most of it. And we're talking about things like 50 years worth of Bronson Alcott's diaries, a tiny portion of which only have been published. But this manuscript of A Long Fatal Love Chase uh, did go out onto the open market. It was there for a year. Uh, I ended up hearing about it. I found the money. I borrowed the money to purchase the manuscript. Uh, once I had that in place, I booked a hotel in New York and went down to the dealer who had it. And I read through it from cover to cover, 290 pages of writing in her hand. And I just thought it would be a bestseller. You know, I, I, I started to get some calls from literary agents who thought it was probably destined for a university press, you know, a limited publication, but I held out because I thought it was really exciting. So, yeah, as it turns out, suddenly I had my 15 minutes of fame. I was in the talk of the town in New Yorker magazine and the New York Times and on the Today Show and Random House sent me around the country. And uh, it was it was all very exciting. Uh, part of the story was that uh, I was a head of school and I had this kind of as a hobby and I'd come across this and acquired it and edited it. The other was there was enormous amount of money involved in that Random House offered a very large sum to be able to publish this. And I said, great, but I want to make sure that the purpose for uh, these funds would be very much in line with what Louisa May Alcott herself would have wanted. So I said, great, 
but 25% of the $1.5 million to publish this had to go to the Orchard House, the Alcott Museum in Concord. 25% would go to the three brothers who sold it to me. And of the remaining 50%, um, after the IRS took their cut, Sampani School would get half and I would get half. So, you know, I'm not complaining. I ended up with a couple of hundred thousand dollars when all was said and done. And then my youngest son decided to switch from West Point, where he was a uh, vegetarian follower of a guru, ice hockey goalie. And he spent a very successful year at West Point, but he decided to switch to the other uh, side of the uh, the coin. And he went to Oberlin College. But at that point, Oberlin wouldn't give us any financial aid because I had all this money. So, but that's all right. Easy come, easy go. And a lot of people benefited from it. And it's a great story. It's still waiting to be made into a movie. So I highly recommend it. A Long Fatal Love Chase, a gothic thriller by Louisa May Alcott. And great. And we'll include that in our show notes. And I'm sure it's available on Amazon. And uh, and we'll find some links for that as well. Uh, so that's a perfect segue into... Uh, uh, my next question, uh, Kent, and that is, uh, by the way, that, that was so great that, uh, you know, this whole, this, how this whole thing unfolded with the manuscript and the New York Times bestseller and, uh, and, and the funds that you uh, received as a result of that, that went to the right charities. And, uh, so no, that's so great. So that brings up another question for me is tell us about Sun Bonnie School and uh, the origins of Sun Bonnie School. Sun Bonnie School, by the way, for our listeners, is located in Sandbird in uh, New Hampshire and is uh, based on the teachings of Sant Mat or uh, the teachings or the principles of uh, moral and ethical living. And, uh, and I'll let you speak uh, more about that, Ken. So tell us about the origins of that and... You've been uh, the head of the school for many, many years, and uh, and you were also co-founder of that. So tell us that journey as to how did it all began, and what was the inspiration for that school? Well, as I, in terms of my own role there, as I like to say, I, I began as head of school when I was 26, and I decided to step down when I was 70. So yes, that's a 40... 44 year run as a, as a head of school is there's there's not too many in the country and uh, but it was it was fun all the way and and exciting and one of the reasons was because uh, it, you know the school didn't start in a certain way and then absolutely stay that way and and so there was there was always change and of course every year you're bringing in new students and so you know schooling is all about the students so of course there's going to be change the school started uh because you know go back to the times in in the in the 1960s uh there was just this explosion of interest in in the spiritual traditions uh, of of india uh of of china somewhat but particularly hinduism uh tibetan buddhism buddhism uh, a lot of us who were searching uh turned to those and 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 found that that there were guideposts there were uh there were paths we could take that were more fulfilling than what we had found what had been offered to us as a friend of mine said we we were looking to expand the boundaries of of our inherited culture and um and so a number of young people started to come and be close to Sant Bani ashram and naturally they had school-age children and if you go back to central new hampshire in the late 1960s early 1970s you know, you go to public school as a seven-year-old, and you you can't really eat in the cafeteria, the hot lunch, because there's there's nothing you can eat. So you're bringing a brown bag, and all of your classmates say, "What's that?" And you say, "Well, I'm a vegetarian." And you know, it, in those days, that was very very challenging. So that was a, a uh, that was an outer impetus for starting the school was we wanted to be sure we had a school that would support the values that we held dear, including a, a respect for all living things as reflected in the vegetarian diet. But there were other aspects, too. Uh, Master Kripal Singh was so emphatic about service to others 
being the true end, the true goal of knowledge. You know, your learning should go toward helping serve others. So it made sense for us to start a school. At the same time, it was very, very clear from the beginning that we were not going to create some kind of a dogmatic school where there would be a catechism and we wanted every single student in the school to become a follower of Master Kripal Singh. That was not it at all, in part because that's not what the spiritual teachers wanted. They saw education very clearly as the foundational uh, process in a individual's life where kind of the foundations for their life were built, including their foundations for earning a living in the world. So, you know, at the same time, Things like uh, the Hare Krishna movement was very, very big. And I saw some Hare Krishna schools where everything was taught to the child with the end toward having them become a member of the Hare Krishna movement. And so we were, you know, that was absolutely not what we wanted. We wanted to be able to support a value system, but not indoctrinate. And not, uh, we didn't want to proselytize and convert anyone. So that was that was how it started. The first year we had six students, and I was really happy that one of them was from a family not connected with the ashram. The second year, uh, by word of mouth, our reputation grew. We had thirteen students, and we were in the stone building that we were building the first year. By the third year, we had to add an addition. We had thirty-five students, and and so it went from there. Now it's a it's a K through eight school with about 130 students. That's uh, that's fantastic, and uh, and you've been uh, so. So my next question to you is: uh, being a founding head and a teaching head for 44 years, when you look back at your life, at you know your years with the Sun Bonnie School, what are you most proud of? I think that you know it's it's. It's really impossible if you're a teacher. It's impossible not to be most proud of the students. And, you know, you, you're you only involved so much with those students because it's the students themselves who are bringing everything to the table. What you can do is, is help them awaken stuff and help show them that there might be other angles to look at things. So over and over again, it's watching students come through, you know, hearing them talk at their graduation, seeing them grow into just really significant, uh, not that they weren't significant from the beginning, but watching them feel good about themselves and feeling like, yes, I have a lot to contribute to this world. As they as they exit Sampani School, there's that sense of Wow, you know, we've done our job because we've allowed this child to grow, to flourish, to become who he or she uh, really wanted to be. So it's a, you know, it's it's working with the students and watching the results of that. Uh, I would I would say would be what I'm most proud of. That, no, that's so great, and uh, and that brings up another question too for me is. You know, as as you started the school and I've been kind of like working through so many years of the ebb and flow of uh, the successes and uh, the highs and the lows, if you will, what, what would you say was your favorite failure along the way? And what I mean by that is that, you know, in retrospect, in hindsight, it seemed like it really wasn't a failure. It was actually a major success that down the road it it really was like the defining moment that turned things around for you in the sense for the history of the school or any experience that you can recall that at that time seems seemed like a major setback but in fact it was a blessing well that you know there are there are a number of those and i think that one of the things that i would always try and sort of step back and and reflect on uh and i actually came to say that one of the things i enjoy most about faculty meetings is when i'm wrong and and i you know i I would just here's my opinion here's what i think we ought to go and then it'd be kind of a 
a silence or quiet. And then somebody would say, well, let's think about this. And then other, yeah, let's think about, or have you thought about, and you know, I, I always felt good when I walk home and I'd lie in bed that night and think, well, that was great. Cause I thought I knew what to do. And wow, you know, my eyes were open. There, there are a whole lot of other possibilities or options or, or whatever where, where we could go. And so you know, I, I always felt that was part of what kept me young was that sense of understanding a, we can all fail, but B, not taking myself too seriously. In terms of an, uh, if I were to pick an event, here's one, for example, but it's just an example. We were accredited by the New England Association of Schools and Colleges. That's the, the accrediting agency for, as it says, schools and colleges in New England. So whether you're Harvard or MIT or whether you're Sampani School, if you want if you want to seek voluntary accreditation that says to the world this is a legitimate uh, educational institution, that's the group you go through. So we waited about uh, gosh, we waited 20 years before we actually sought that, and part of that was I was trying to figure, are we ready for it yet? Uh, for and finally, we said, yeah, we are. So the first 1993 was our first accreditation visit. And now we passed that in flying colors. People just thought, what a great place. Then in 2003, the same thing happened. Just just fabulous. 2012, our third cycle, we actually uh, failed a couple of the standards. And that was a great wake up call because what can so often happen, and I think this is true when you have a, a leader in any company or in any business, if they're there for a long, long time, and you know, a 44-year tenure is a long, long time, but a 20-year tenure is a long time. So you can start coasting. You know, The vehicle seems to be working, but you're not really looking at it as critically as you did in the beginning. So you can have areas of rust that you're not even noticing because each year those kids are giving great graduation speeches once again. And you're thinking, hey, this is great. We're doing the same thing. But the visiting committee that came in in 2012 really noticed a number of things that Sampani needed to pay attention to. So I was actually happy about that because they really shined the light on some areas that needed the light shined on it, especially if the school were going to have a future beyond me. So this allowed me in the last few years to really focus on some things that we needed to do to make some tough decisions, uh, including staffing decisions. When you have people that you've worked with for 30 years, who wants to say to that person, gosh, you're just not doing the job anymore. You know, we need someone else in your place. So that was, in in essence, that was a failure that was absolutely a blessing. But this is this is how the accreditation process works, the way NIASC has developed it. It's it's just a fabulous process, and I can't say enough about it. So that's that's one example, and and there are of course more. No, that's uh, that's a great point you make, Kent, uh, because uh, certainly, uh, <clears throat> as you said. You know, we learn from our failures, uh, obviously, but, you know, it's very easy to be complacent when things are going great. It's like, why fix something that ain't broken uh, is kind of the phrase that we use in our IT uh, uh, world, if you will. And and sometimes these kind of, uh, uh, you know, in the IT, uh, I come from an IT background, and essentially one of the things we have is ISO 20,000 certification. And every year we have to get qualified for that. There are certain standards and protocols, and if you do not meet those, obviously you get dinged for that and things like that. So I totally understand the accreditation uh, process that you're referring to there and the challenges with meeting those high standards. Uh, but the other thing also I would like to highlight upon what you just mentioned, which is so brilliant, is that, uh, you know, uh, sometimes we have to make tough choices for the betterment of uh, the direction in which we want to take the company. And, and also uh, the fact that having these open discussions and having a certain uh, thought about which direction you want to go, but when you start getting these feedback, you can take a step back and reflect on things that you may not have considered. And it's like being in a blind spot. Uh, those kind of feedback can help. So I want to kind of go back to uh, something that you mentioned earlier about the 
60s and the 70s movement. And it seems like there was this desire during that time for spiritual quest, you know, uh, in the teachings of Hinduism and Buddhism. So my, so I have two questions for the, for you for that regarding that. One is what, what was so different during those times that people were so out there seeking spirituality? And do you think does that same passion exist today? I lost you for a minute. So yeah, so uh, so the question that I was asking uh, was like going back. No, to I, the, I, I heard I heard the question. I've got the question. Um, well, one of one of the things that clearly happened, which I'm not sure it had happened much until that time, but yeah, I've, I'll, let me let me start by saying I've always in, I've always appreciated, uh, let's call it an aspect of Bohemia. I've always felt that. Their artists, musicians, those who were kind of living on the edge. Uh, we go back to Greenwich Village, go back to the 1920s, you know, go back to the beatniks, go back to the hippies. Those who were living on the edge helped keep society honest. You know, they, 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 they kept asking those questions that just, as you said, the complacency can set, set in and people are kind of on autopilot. I think one of the things that happened in the 60s was – that movement went from being kind of a fringe movement to being like the top cultural movement. So, so you would hear the Beatles or you would hear Bob Dylan and, and uh, you know, many others, Van Morrison, they'd be top 10 hits. And yet what they were singing about were sort of, they were asking us to look deeper. So I, I think this is kind of a, a rare confluence of forces where pop culture actually was assuming a role that was had often been reserved for a kind of a fringe group in the past so i i do think that kind of opened the floodgates uh you know one of the questions one can always ask is what was the ultimate impact and how many people stuck with it It, i've met a couple people i think in the last 10 years who said Oh yeah, that's so interesting. I was vegetarian once, or oh yeah, I, I was part of an ashram once, and and then you know someone even said, oh yeah, I have all these friends, and I began to notice that everyone sort of went through that phase. And of course, you know, for some of us, it wasn't a phase; it it became a way of life. So, I the lasting power, I don't know, but I look back on the '60s as being, or at least my impression of them and what my friends and I went through very, very positive. It wasn't hedonistic. It wasn't about free love. Uh, you know, everybody having all the drugs they wanted, having all the sex they wanted. Was that happening? Yes. But for me, it was about a search, a a search for a higher way of life. Um, is it possible today? I, I think there's some very, fascinating things today my friend paul hawken who's an extraordinary environmentalist and entrepreneur uh you know he he wrote a book not so long ago all about how in some ways we're involved in the biggest spiritual movement that the earth has ever seen It, it it's just all these movements are not necessarily talking to each other so I think there is a lot going on now, and I think uh, I think that it's partly a question of how how well we're communicating with each other. If if you want, Paul's book is called Blessed Unrest, and it's a it's a great book. He's currently leading the charge through a movement called Drawdown. Drawdown is a book which uh, outlines eighty solutions right now that are practicable that are happening to reduce to reverse global warming that if only we could scale them up um you know we we could really do something and there's a whole there's a whole movement i'm involved in that too because i'm close to paul and we're looking at ways that schools could do more and more to help uh educate people steps they can take to reverse global warming no that is uh, that is great uh and and this is uh, a perfect segue into uh, my another uh, question for you, Kent. Is 
Uh, I want you to go back, walk down the memory lane, August 21st, 1974. Uh, you received uh, the news that uh, Master Kirpal Singh has, has left a physical plane. And uh, now there was no successor being defined at that point. And then uh, essentially, uh, Russell Perkins he gets this uh, intuition and the inner visions to go visit India and uh, meets uh, Master uh, Ajab Singh, who's also my living, my master that I got initiated by. And uh, so he sends a cable back saying, have found Ajab Singh. Yeah, he's, uh, he's real. We love him. And, and that, and when he came back from India and shared his story, that's for you when the saga began, as you mentioned in your book. So walk us through that moment when you decide to go to India, you land in Delhi, and then uh, you stay at Papu's place, uh, or Baga place, or I believe, take a train to Ganganagar, and uh, you end up at the ashram, it's uh, Ganganagar, uh, Sanji's ashram, and uh, he's wearing this pink turban, and you see him for the first time, and then you have these these questions uh, going on, is he uh, is he the successor, is he the real deal? And then you surrender to the process at that point, and then, and as the days go by, you know, he looks more and more like Sankar Paul Singh for you, and it just, it's just an amazing uh, story after that. So walk us through that experience in terms of, and, and the real question that I'm trying to get to here is, a lot of people who've been initiated on a certain path, uh, and once the master leaves the physical plane, it's a very difficult choice for them to accept and embrace somebody else to say, okay, this is uh, the successor or this is uh, the next path or master that I'm going to follow. And and so what did you learn from your experience and what are some of the things that people can take into account and consideration when making that choice? I know it's a mouthful, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would go back to that, that, uh, you know, my, my quote in quotes of, of Master Kirpal Singh about when the needle of your heart and your mind and your soul seem to be pointing in the same direction. Uh, it, it ultimately, it's really, really hard for a person to give another person advice about spiritual things, it, it, especially, I think, advice about who is or who is not a perfect or a true master. Uh, we all know that after Santa Jabe Singh passed away in 1997, uh, a number of successors have come up. And I have some dear friends who have adopted one successor or another and feel this is the true successor for Santa Jabesing, for Sanchi, as we call him. You know, because none of those figures have resonated with me, I, I could be wrong. I mean, that's that's for sure. I don't know whether I'm I'm right. I can only but I can only go with with what I perceive, what I feel, what I understand. So this is how it was when I when I went to India, I was excited about meeting Santa Jabesing. Um, I did see him and I was drawn to him, but I was also wanting to be somewhat cautious. I didn't there. The, the masters tell story after story after story of, uh, you know, the things that happen after a spiritual teacher dies, in, including when family members kind of get involved with the wealth of the, of the physical wealth of say an ashram or the land or whatever's built up around the movement. So, I was cautious, but each day I just felt more and more like I had a connection with Sanchi and, and like he had a connection with me. And it began to feel like, uh, you know, I, I can't tell you about my past lives. I, a, I shouldn't if I, if I knew about them and, and B, I, you know, that would, if I started doing that, it would suggest that I had a level of inner experience achievement or inner progress which as you know we're not supposed to talk about so but it you know it began to feel to me like i had a connection from the past with sanchi and you know it just was also very very natural that 
I just thought this is it for me. You know, this is this this absolutely works. And um, and I I just was uh, at the mental level as I sat for meditation, uh, at the emotional level, I just felt so at home that this was obviously the next step for me. No, it's great. And I think uh, we are right about the time where we can uh, we have a few more uh questions for you, Ken, before we wrap it up. And our next section is a rapid fire round. This is just called a lightning round. I'm going to ask you a bunch of fun questions. That's the first response that comes to your mind is. And so let's let's start with a rapid fire round. And are you, the first question for you is, are you ready for this? <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> okay. So who's uh, your favorite music band? Uh Band, band. I mean, I was a Stones fan, but I love the Who. But you know, I listen to Van Morrison probably more than anyone. But but it would have to be Bob Dylan. How's that for <laughs> great? <laughs> four, four fans. <laughs> great. And the second question is: uh, What book have you read again and again? Of have regifted or gifted over the years? I, you know that. There's not one that comes to mind, and it's 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 a little tough for me because um, I taught high school English for years and years and years, and we read, uh, and I would have the kids read things. I, I can tell you a story that I have read over and over again, but I've actually sat down and read on my own. It's by a, a main writer from the 19th century called Sarah Orne Jewett, hmm. and it's called A White Heron. Uh, it's possibly called The White Heron, but it's a short story that is just beautiful. It's fabulously written, and it's a wonderful story of a little girl who might be able to make a lot of money by telling a hunter who's an ornithologist who, in those days, they shot birds and stuffed them, and he's missing a white heron in his collection, and she knows where it lives. So. Her dilemma is, is she going to get some money that her family could desperately use and reveal the secret place where this bird lives or not? And it, it's just a, it's fabulously written. You know, it was written in 1890, but it reads like it was written yesterday. Wow. And we'll include that in the show notes. And I'll uh, definitely uh, add it to my reading list as well. Uh, so, Kent, if you could be successful in another profession, which would you choose? I'd, I'd like to be you know, a successful author. I'd also like to be a successful musician. Great. Uh, and if you could have witnessed one event in history, what would that be? It might be fun to be sitting and watching the Buddha struggle under the banyan tree, you know, when he spent all that time going back and forth and when he finally uh, achieved nirvana, enlightenment. No, that's great. And then uh, the three most important things in life, according to you. You know, you have to maintain a sense of humor. Uh, no matter how important spirituality is and i would i would list spirituality uh companions let's put that let's put it like that a sense of the spiritual uh camaraderie with others and yourself but also a sense of humor i like that those are three uh, beautiful things and and then uh one final question, and that is, if you could have, within the rapid-fire round, if you could have any message of your choice on a billboard, what would that be? <laughs> <laughs> know thyself. Uh, like that, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, I believe. Uh, that's great. And so, uh, and now we are moving on to our final section. It's the wrap-up section, and I've got one, three final questions for you, Kent. And one is... What is your current uh, personal business passion project uh, that you're working on? What are you looking forward to in the next six months to a year from now? Uh, well, first of all, it's I'm starting uh, business as a consultant. So right now I'm in the middle of taking a very demanding course online to build my own website. 
But that website will have a few things. Obviously, I could be a consultant, or I think I could be a consultant for schools, especially small schools. So I'm very interested in uh, being a consultant for schools. But I also would like to be a consultant for either institutions or individuals who are looking to build a collection around especially the transcendentalists or to have their collection evaluated uh, because I, I'm, I'm fairly well conversant with uh, Thoreau, Emerson, the Alcotts, that whole gang. Uh, individual projects, and I would list these on the website too, I'm right in the middle of transcribing about 150 letters that I, I knew were in a box, but I've only started to look at them, that my father wrote when he was courting my mother in 1941, wow. and then got married, and then he's in the Navy. So these letters span from 1941 to 1945. It's only my father's side of the correspondence, but I, I am learning things about my father that I never knew. So that's really interesting. And I at the least, I would like to make all those letters available in print form to my grand to my parents' grandchildren. Uh, but I think others might be interested too, because a very interesting time, uh, World War II. And then I have all the files that a professor collected for forty years of the library of Nathaniel Hawthorne, and he was a professor at the University of Missouri in, in St. Louis. And I got in touch with him because I was passionate about Hawthorne and collecting. And as he realized he was dying of cancer, he was afraid that all those files were going to be thrown out. So he very graciously said I could have them if I could find someone in St. Louis to come and collect them and send them. So I have two full filing cabinets, four drawers actually, full of uh Notes he made on every single book he could track down that had been in Nathaniel Hawthorne's library. And you can find books on Emerson's library, Thoreau's library, Melville's library, but there is no book on Hawthorne's library. So that's another project I've got sitting out there. No, that's great. And it's very fascinating. Um, and we'll include, uh, once you have the website ready, we'll include it in the profile and show notes so that people can find out more about you and your work and what you're up to. So the next question is, uh, what are three things you're grateful for in life today? Uh, a mind that, you know, is inquisitive and, again, doesn't take itself too seriously for the companionship that has resulted in not only great friends over time, but also extraordinary family. Uh, you know, my wife, Karen, as I said, 51 years now and our our two sons and we have three grandchildren and having been shown a a direction to a spiritual path that i embraced fully when i found it and continue to embrace today no that's great and i would like to acknowledge you kent uh, for a few things here first of all what an incredible life you've lived right from uh, the days of pursuing your education and then using the education to really make a difference, make a contribution uh, to uh, starting a school and Sunbonnie School and really helping the education systems around the globe, literally. And, uh, and then also constantly digging into the arts and culture and uh, and sharing that with the world around us. And I think, uh, and then living a life that is uh, really a role model for all of us to learn from. So thank you for doing what you do. And uh, I really appreciate you for that. Well, that's very, very kind words. So thank you very much for having me on this show. My I pleasure. And then one final question, and this is how we wrap up all our interviews. And that is, why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends? You froze on that one, so I have to hear that question again. <laughs> yeah, so this is how we wrap up all our interviews and uh, with the final question, and that is, why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends? It's all about perspective. And, you know, one of the things that I found when I was trying to lead Saint Bonnie through strategic change 
and I believe this to the bottom of my heart, if you've been in the middle of something, and the longer you've been in the middle of it, the more this is true, it is very hard to see where the next steps should go. So it is so helpful to get an outside perspective on things. So I think that, you know, we all have, we all have everything to learn. I mean, we all have much to learn from anyone and everyone. So I I think listening to this podcast would open doors, open eyes and, and open thoughts for people. Great. Thank you so much. And for your, uh, uh, taking the time to be on this show and I really appreciated and enjoyed our conversation today and for everybody listening with that we'll wrap it up and if you like what you heard please share don't be shy thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Carla Ras. if you enjoyed today's show head over to wisdomoffriends.net to join the conversation access the show notes and discover our fantastic bonus content we hope you'll pass along our web address wisdomoffriends.net to your friends and colleagues be sure to check out our archive section on the website for previous episodes and subscribe on iTunes rate and leave a review it's very much appreciated thank Thank you. you this has been a seven symphonies production join us next time for another edition of the wisdom of friends